morning. So, yeah, I'm a doctor. I, uh, I did my uh, Ph.D. work in two areas, uh, New Testament theology and Roman social history. So I'm a lot of fun. A great little side business on kids' parties right after the clown and before the balloon person. So, uh, yeah, I went to school like grade 29. My niece one time introduced me to one of her friends. She was eight. Um, I was driving them to the frozen yogurt stand. My job was to pay, drive, pay, and say nothing. Those are the three directions I was given by my niece. She was eight, and uh, she uh, uh, suddenly realized that she ought to explain to her friend who this protoplasmic blob in the front seat driving the car was. And I heard her say, that's my Uncle David. He's a doctor, but not the kind who does anyone any good. <laughs> so that was, uh, that's helped frame for me, you know, quite how I ought to think about my life. Um, Yeah. No, don't feel sorry for Matt. So I was yeah, fine. Um, you know, I, I, probably when you walked in, you got one of these, which I think are called handouts. I'm old enough that I remember bulletins. Yeah, but that's sort of like before cell phones and stuff like that. So if you take a look at this one underneath the date, you'll see there's a title for today's sermon, A Family of Good. And what I'm doing is I'm just following in Lance's uh, uh, series on Galatians. Galatians and 1 Corinthians really are Paul, uh, I mean, they're Paul doing pretty serious bare-knuckle theology. Now, uh, a lot of times people say, well, Romans is maybe Paul's the pinnacle of his theological thought. Yeah, well, uh, I don't want to say that's not true, but in Romans he does what he doesn't typically do. Romans, he is uh, reflecting, sort of like in his study, and he's writing one chapter of a systematic theology textbook. Because the whole theme of Romans is salvation. But normally what he does is, some church uh, people have asked him questions, and he's responding. That's what he typically does. So he had the capacity to be a, a systematic theologian, an academic theologian, but really he's a pastoral theologian. He's a, he's a high, highfalutin fix-it man. We got these problems. And so uh, he brings to bear certain theological tools. And Galatians is one of the high watermarks of this. In fact, the passage we're going to look at today, Galatians 6, is studded with interrelationships to, his, to this whole broad uh, theological uh, scheme. So uh, we're, it's a very comp- well. The passage itself isn't complicated or complex. It connects in many, many ways to this very broad picture of what he says uh, God is about, uh, what God has accomplished in Christ, and what it means uh, for us. So the first thing here on the title is the church is a family of good. Now, this may not seem very exciting or very revolutionary, but in the ancient world, the Roman world, the world that Paul knew, this idea of good uh, had a very different definition than we might imagine, or that, or that the term conjures in our minds when we hear it. Uh, because the Roman world was, uh, it ran on the, the rails of reciprocity. There's no way I would do something for you unless 
I was really confident, supremely confident, that um, you would have the capacity to do something nice for me in return. You just wouldn't, you just wouldn't uh, offer generosity, largesse, for the sake of it. And what's so startling about the teaching of Jesus is this, this idea of disinterested goodness. Remember John, uh, uh, Luke chapter 6, where he says, okay, if you're going to invite people over for a dinner at your house dinner party, don't invite people who have the capacity, who are wealthy enough to be able to in return invite you to their house. That's the typical pattern. Don't do it that way. Instead, invite people who have no ability whatsoever to return the favor. So do good just because it's good. Don't even have a thought for how it might return favorably to you. Now let's pause for a second and think about ourselves. How do we stand? How are we measuring up to that one? We live in, we live in, a, in, a, in a stratified society. I think. Intentionally so. We tend to hang out with people that we perceive as like us. But as bad as we are, it's still not as crazy uh, developed as it was in the Roman world. Well, that shouldn't make us feel all that much better. We can work on it a little bit. You know, uh, I'm already going off script, I know, I can tell. Uh, uh, maybe 50, 60 years ago, uh, uh, a guy named Donald McGavin, professor uh, at, uh, at Fuller Seminary, he really kicked off a, a major movement, kind of a firestorm. He's the father of the whole church growth movement. Have you ever heard of that? But he articulated a principle called the homogenous unit principle. And he said, people like to become Christians when they're around people like them. Now, uh, I would say that, that you can tweak that principle, and that is... Um, Really, people like to become Christians when they're around people they already know. Here's the deal. In the midst of a society which we, that we're born into and it aims toward, it inclines towards stratification, let's be intentional about broadening the scope of our network of relationships. That makes sense? Let's go out of our comfort zone a little bit and connect with folks who don't live in our neighborhood. But we see folks, I know we do, we see folks with the eyes of what kind of car are they driving? Am I, am I just, am I wrong? Don't we do that? What kind of car are they driving? How many letters are after their name? Where do they go to school? Where do they live? Jesus taught dis- disinterested goodness. And Early on, we know that the church had lived into this. Second century A.D., there was a guy named Aristides, Aristides of Athens, and he was explaining to the emperor Hadrian about this Christian thing. And this gorgeous phrase, this is what he said, wherever they are, good flows from them into the world. May that be true of us, right? So this title is uh, A Family of Good. And it's a family not just a collection, a random collection of folks. He calls us, the Christian community is supposed to be a family. Not just folks having to stay, share the same space for an hour and a half on Sunday mornings. But a family. So we're going to explore that a little bit about what that means uh, for Paul. 
Um, and then the subtitle is, The Church is Called to Do Good Things. So there's some action involved on our parts, apparently. Uh, and then the fill-in-the-blank. See that kind of the, near, about halfway down on your handout? Formerly bulletin, but now handout. Uh, so we must do right things, stuff, actions for right Reasons. So motives matter. Okay, you ready to go? Well, come on. We're, it is. I know it's, it's not really that early in the morning. I've already had six coffees, so I'm ready to go. So, all right. Uh, uh, Galatians six. Uh, the, if you have your Bibles open, uh, that'd be uh, I'd be. Or you have your Bibles with you, it'd be great to turn to that chapter. Gal- uh, Galatians six. I'm going to just start with the first word, brothers. Just stop right there, brothers. Now, if we were uh, in Galatia in the 50s or 60s A.D., and we just happened to wander into a Christian meeting, we would be immediately struck, just knocked over by two significant differences, things we'd never, ever seen before. The first of them would be the wide range of people present, from all up and down the socioeconomic cultural spectrum. Now, the Roman Empire lasted over a thousand years. The Athenian Empire, Pericles, the Peloponnesian War, all that stuff, 30 years. The empire of Alexander the Great started to break up within a half hour of his death. So, I mean, one of the great questions from ancient history is, how did the Romans craft a, a theory of government, a social order, a compact, that they were able to establish a culture that lasted a thousand years? And the answer is, they made common cause with the wealthy and powerful people they conquered. So immediately upon being conquered, they reached out to the ruling class, to the wealthy, and they said, we're going to right now grant you entrance into the highest level of our culture and society. So within a hundred years of the empire being founded, of the first emperor, you get, you get emperors who were Spanish. They weren't even Roman, they weren't Italian, they weren't even born in Italy. They were born in Spain. So it is this cosmopolitan culture, but only at the upper level. An intensely class-conscious and stratified. So you walk into this Christian community, and there's suddenly there's all kinds of people from all up and down the social spectrum. Slaves worshipping alongside the people that own them. From the one, about 115, the Emperor Trajan sent an emissary, a guy named uh, Pliny, to uh, Bithynia, which is a region just north of Galatia, central Turkey. Uh, to, and one of the things he reported on was, uh, was the early Christian movement. One of the first evidences outside Christian literature of the existence of, of Christianity. And he reported on what he saw, what he observed in a worship service. So they come together, they sing hymns to Christ as to a God, and, um, and one of the features that is really kind of bizarre is that um, you know, they, they draw from all classes. 
And he even said this one congregation, he didn't use that term, this one worship uh, group that I observed was led, and he uses the word in Latin, ministere, ministers, by two slave women. So, the early Christian community was marked by this, this sense of connectivity and, uh, and family. Nobody in the ancient world would call someone who wasn't their family brother or sister. But that's a mark of the early Christian community. I even heard it in the worship service here today. This is a truth we need to live further into. I just ended a sentence with a preposition. That's not good. Into which we need to live further. (laughs) Family. And then he says, if anyone uh, is uh, caught in a transgression. And the word transgression here is not the usual word for sin. That's harmartia, and it is the image of an archer who shoots an arrow at a target. Doesn't hit the bullseye, doesn't mean the target flies off and it's a tree somewhere. So you've totally missed the mark. That's the usual word for sin. This word uh, is more like, uh, more like you're driving on an icy road and, you, and the car slips out from under you and you crash. So you can kind of say, hey, it's not my fault, really. Kind of like Adam and Eve. It's not really my fault, Adam says. It's that woman, you know, it's her fault. By the way, you made her, not me, so it's not my fault. <laughs> so we, we, have the, I mean, we just have this tendency to want to, like, take, to not take responsibility for sin. So, uh, I mean, there is the moral question of what you're doing driving on that icy road anyway. But nonetheless, the point is, it's not premeditated. It's not like you're invo- this person's involved in a sin where they've been plotting it for three years, how to, you know, assassinate somebody. Or rob a bank or something like that. It just kind of happened. And isn't that the way sin happens a lot of times in our lives? It just sort of happens. We happen along and suddenly, boom, there we give in. Sometimes it happens like right after we've done something incredibly noble. I lived, used to live in Chicago. I lived there for 12 years, taught at a university there. And the last Sunday I preached at our, at our church church we were a part of. And I preached a sermon on patience. And man, I was awesome that day. Oh, everybody said so. I even thought so. Man, that was like the best sermon on patience I've ever heard. So we're driving in the car to get to lunch after the service. I'm going to turn left and I can see Graziano's down the street. The best Italian food in our favorite restaurant. My light turns green. The beautiful green arrow was there saying, go ahead. And some 90 million-year-old lady in a 1972 Cadillac aircraft carrier turns left in front of me, even though hers was clearly red. And she's going like 20 feet an hour, right? So she burns my whole green. And I'm just, I'm just going, I'm apoplectic. I just preached this awesome sermon on patience. Are you like me? Wow, I mean, it just, boom, kind of, bam, suddenly we do something like, where did that come from? As an aside, let's talk a little bit about about where sin comes from. Now, the Bible 
says that uh, sin has really kind of three uh, main sources. One is Satan. That's the, ver- the word in Hebrew. It comes from a verb meaning to accuse. So Satan is uh, the accuser. He's the prosecuting attorney. I don't know if you remember like Job chapter 1. Satan's in heaven. God says, what have you been doing? Well, I've been going to and fro on the earth. And I'm, I'm like, I'm, in, I'm gathering evidence to accuse people. Right? That's, and in Zechariah 3, clearly he's doing that. It's clearly a courtroom scene. I'm a, Satan's accusing Joshua the high priest, who's wearing filthy robes, symbolizing that the people of Israel are guilty. Now the problem, one of the problems with Satan beyond that is uh, he, he, he's not content to just be the prosecuting attorney. On his day off, he's encouraging sin. I mean, you don't want the Placer County DA on Saturday, you know, hanging out and saying, Psst, here's a gun, I think that bank is ready to be taken, you know, pushed over. You know, you don't want, to, you don't want the DA encouraging sin. So that's what, that's what he does. He, he, he adds the guise of agent provocateur to his role. So Satan can, can be a cause of sin. There's also, secondly, just, just the world out there with its allurements. And also the way it, the way it frames our thinking. I don't know if you've noticed this. You, um, but, uh, you know, Paul says in, 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 in um, uh, uh, Galatians says, uh, uh, do, uh, do not be conformed to the thinking of this world, right? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Have you noticed about the power of the thinking of this world? Have you noticed that lately what we deserve, that has become a much bigger set of things? We deserve everything now. Years ago, I was with my daughter up the confluence, you know, where the American North and Middle Force, and, and, uh, and I got up to about here, and then I realized, oh, my cell phone is in my pocket. That was awesome. So I went to get a new cell phone, and I went to the Verizon store, and uh, the young man helping me with, you know, like, seriously gelled hair, very heavy gelled hair, um, said, uh, here's the newest phone. I mean, you, this is the one you want, you know, but, but I said, you know, it, it's fast. It's faster than Starship Enterprise. I said, you know, I don't, I don't want fast. What do you mean you don't want fast? I don't want fast. Sure you want fast. And then he leaned over and said, not only do you want fast, you deserve. So this connects. This is the way our world is, is, is forming us. It's teaching us we deserve all kinds of stuff. And that relates to the third source of sin. James says, you, know what, you want to know why you sin? Don't blame Satan. Don't blame anything else. It's your own, and the Greek word is epithumia, your own evil inclination. The rabbis believed, Jesus believed, Paul teaches that within us there's an inclination towards good and an inclination towards what would really be just, uh, just selfishness, self-interest. It's really hard to escape the gravitational pull of our own selves. Does that make sense? So uh, James says, well, it's really that. And Satan and the world, they kinda, that's almost like, the, like a, uh, uh, the perfect home for those temptations to come from the outside. But we have them within ourselves. And so... Um, Paul says here, the brother who is falling to this kind of transgression should be restored. A couple things I want to say about restoration. Um, I own a 99 Saab convertible. I know an awful lot about restoration. And some of the parts I need 
are actually are kind of like brand new. But other parts are really what was already in the car that gets worked on. Restoration is taking what's already there and bringing it back into service. Not brand new. Because wisdom comes sometimes through the, the crucible of being injured. Aeschylus, the, um, in his Agamemnon, the great Greek poet, wrote these words, absolutely stunningly beautiful. These are the words, actually, that Robert Kennedy fastened on uh, in, in, in the months and years after his brother was, was, was assassinated and what actually came to bring him comfort. Aeschylus wrote, It is the will of the gods that the one who learns wisdom must suffer. And even in our sleep, pain which we cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until with it Unbidden and against our will comes wisdom by the awful grace of God. Now that's somebody who doesn't even believe, really believe in, in, in a living God. James, of course, has the same theme. Wow, when you encounter difficulty, don't try to pull the ripcord. Don't try to find the exit right away. Stay in it. Why? Because... Um, God needs to work on you. I used the image of, of the gravitational pull of our own selves earlier. Um, throughout Christian history, um, some brilliant people who've walked the life long before us, we have, we have a tremendous advantage because there's 2,000 years of people living to Christ ahead of us who we can learn from their example. Um, Teresa of Avila wrote, we should, we should seek God for what he wants to form in us instead of what we want him to form in us. Think about that. I mean, that skewered me the first time I thought about that one. Well, even when I'm asking God, give, you know, give me this spiritual thing. Help me be more X or Y. That sounds really good. It's spiritual, it's Christian. Maybe it's even humble. But look at me, I'm telling God what to do. So, restoration. It's the person who's been injured who you restore. Secondly, um, God wants to restore every one of us. There's none of us that are so far away. Remember the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And the Pharisee says, you know, God, uh, I want forgiveness, but hey, I'm not as bad as that tax collector over there. And the tax collector said, simply, uh, have mercy on me, a sinner. Unconditional confession. You know, the the prodigal son left everything in the far country. When we come back, we've got to leave stuff in the far country. Not have it in a trailer behind us. Unconditional confession leads to unconditional forgiveness. No matter what you've done. No matter what's been done to you. 
the love and forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ is such that you can be made whole and restored. And Paul says, okay, when you're doing this, do it in gentleness. I think a lot of times we want to do it with some sense of righteousness, right? You sort of think, well, they're screwed. They're screwed up. You know, they should have known better. But gentleness, it's related to meekness. Meek To be meek is to offer criticism in such a way that it's welcomed. Can we do this without even a hint? Without even a, a bare scent of a, of a kind of superiority? The thing that's really uh, powerful in this section here um, is this notion of bearing one another's burdens. Many times I think um, we find ourselves with the attitude that we're in competition with other Christians. We sort of judge who's doing things better or who's got a more exciting position or something like that. So Paul has a couple words about that. He says, you know what? God is the one who gives gifts. You don't deserve to have the gifts you've got. So why are you thinking you're all that? And the other notion here is, and Paul develops this in 1 Corinthians, the idea of the, of the Christian community as a body. We need each other. That's why our body works. All the parts need each other. And each part is essential. And just because the world elevates certain parts, we in the Christian community ought to recognize that those parts that don't get a lot of positive press or a lot of attention, those are the ones in the Christian community we ought to elevate. And he says, um, when one part suffers, the whole body suffers. I've thought about that a lot. Because I don't think, in, in fact, uh, I experience suffering in the Christian communities I've been a part of in that way. But here's the deal. If my whole left side is fully anesthetized and without realizing it, I cut myself or my arm gets cut off or something and it's spattering blood all over, just because I don't feel it doesn't mean I ain't hurting. So the challenge here is how can we know each other so deeply, so with such vulnerability that we actually function this way? Now, when I was in grad school, I was, uh, my wife and I were in a couple's Bible study, and I'm writing my Ph.D. dissertation on a New Testament theme. And here's what happens when you're writing your Ph.D. dissertation on the New Testament and you're in a couple's Bible study. You become answer boy for the Bible study. And I, I loved to be an answer boy for the Bible study. It, it met certain needs I no longer have. Because <laughs> every time there was a question, they'd all just look at me, and I'd answer. And even if I didn't know the answer, I'd make one up, because what do they know, you know? <laughs> Writing it down and everything. 
So one night there was a new couple there, Eric and Teresa Echegaray. And they said, you know, they, I think they had gone to church and they were young, but it had been years, so I'm thinking no threat to answer, boy. <laughs> and the first question comes, and everybody's quiet, everybody looks at me, and I take a breath, you know, getting ready to answer. And all of a sudden I hear Teresa start talking. And I'm thinking to myself, um, someone should explain the rules <laughs> of the Bible study to Teresa. And maybe at 30 seconds in, I'm thinking, that's pretty good. And another 30 seconds, I'm looking for a pencil or something to write it down. Because here's what I learned that night. Teresa had been given by God the gift of understanding Scripture that goes far beyond people with three PhDs. And here's the deal. We typically judge other people according to the world standards. As I said earlier, where they live, what kind of car they drive, how many letters are after their name. And when we do that within the Christian community, we rob ourselves of the healing touch that God has for us. Because and I should because we are we look around. Look around right now. Look into the eyes of people near you. Go ahead. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. You can do this. It's not that hard. <laughs> this is your body. God isn't going to touch you and heal you by, by sending necessarily by angels and some bolt of lightning. But His agents are the people right around you. And if you aren't able to see in them your sisters and brothers, and you're going to miss the healing that God has for you. So this is a, this is a radically different uh, social organism than anything else in the first century. Paul wants people to understand that, live into that. So other people are your responsibility, that's true. But we are also the other we are also the responsibility of other people. We need each other. Now I have to find my place in my script again. <laughs> oh yeah, and then, and then he says, um, you know, uh, but watch out, this is verse five. Watch out. Lest you too be tempted. Now, that, that's a word, in Greek, that's the word pyrasmos, from which we get pirate. And uh, when we think of temptation, in our culture, we lay stress, we lay emphasis on the intent of the tempter. Right? Yeah, oh, okay, this happened to me, but, you know, they tempted me. It was their fault. They put the chocolate in front of me. And couldn't, yeah. What could I do? The New Testament doesn't do that. The New Testament lays stress not on the intent of the tempter, but on our reaction to the situation. So, pyrasmos can be translated in English as both temptation or as test. It isn't either one until you respond. If you encounter that situation and you give in, boom, then it's a temptation for you. If you don't, if you pass it, then it's called a test. And it makes you stronger. So what, what Paul is saying here is, you know, know yourself. 
Know yourself. Avoid those areas where you know you've got weakness. And if you know you've got weakness, make sure there are other folks within the Christian community with whom you've shared that. You're connected enough with them, you've shared that, so they can come alongside and support you. We weren't made to live this life alone. Okay, then in verse 6, Paul says, uh, essentially, you know what? You should pay the pastoral staff. Yeah, yeah, you should. You should pay the pastoral staff. Uh, And there are a couple of major reasons for this. First of all, you know what? Um, We are a community. We do need to support each other. We have a responsibility for one another. Now, the, the back story here is uh, within the early Christian community, um, not in any official capacity, but there was a kind of a, an understanding and a, and, a, and a practice that had developed of suspicion about paying leaders. In part because, um, uh, and a suspicion also about, uh, about people who didn't accept pay. See, Jesus didn't have a job. We know in, from Luke's gospel that there were some wealthy women who uh, gathered support, and out of their out of their uh, largesse, they supported you know the Jesus band as they traveled around. Now Paul got criticized in Corinth when he didn't follow that practice, but instead had a job, and he said it was so that people didn't you know criticize him or or charge him with being a freeloader. So this is a really complicated situation. So Paul just makes it clear. Here's the teaching. You should pay your teachers. Make sure they're taken care of. They deserve it. It's part of, you know, it's part, it, it's part of this, this body. They have that function. But there's another reason, and it has to do with the power of money. Where there is money, there is menace. Money is like whatever it is in your closet when you're 10. And you go into bed, you know? Close the door. I still close my closet door. You never know. I mean, there's something a little scary in there. Uh... The Greek playwrights reflected on this. There was a, a, a play called Wealth that Aristophanes wrote, and this is about the introduction of money, a money economy. Before that, it had been a barter system where, you know, you took care of your family, right? You know, they came in and, and like, and, and uh, you traded goods, wheat for, uh, you know, for fabric or something like that. But once you introduce a money economy, suddenly there's a lot more competition and it, it, it unleashes that selfishness that's within us. We start paying people to do things instead of, instead of being personally responsible. And it gets to the place where we actually have tremendous conflict. We'll kill each other over money. Because you can never have enough. You can have enough of anything else. I mean, can you have too many cars? Yeah. Can you, can, you have, can you have, I mean, even people with insanely big homes, I mean, you know, you, you don't need six of them. But is there ever any limit 
to how much money you need within our cultural system. No. Deny money its power over you. Give it away. Then in verse 7 he says, God is not deceived. Uh, be, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. This is a pretty simple uh, uh, rule or law just of, of life. What you sow, you will reap. So uh, I, I spent some of my growing up uh, living with an uncle. Uh, my uncles were farmers uh, not far from here. In fact, if you can think of where Baseline Road and Watt Avenue meet, I'm the last person to drive a tractor over the, over the fields to the south and east of that, uh, of that intersection. Uh, and uh, always the first Monday of October, so it would be tomorrow if my uncles were still alive, the first Monday of October is when we started plowing. And then we'd sow, we'd sow wheat, and what did we harvest in August? Wheat. Yeah, we sowed wheat and we harvested wheat. We didn't harvest chocolate, you know, or asparagus or, or plums. What you sow, you will reap. So be careful what you do. Be careful about what you love. Because we become subject to the things we love, and subjects cannot judge. Even in your patterns, your habitual patterns, even if no one in the world will ever find out what it is you're doing, it is shaping you. What you sow, you will reap. So don't weary of doing good. Don't give up. And let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. Now, he says, sow in the Spirit. I think this is the last major point I, I, I have time to make. Um, you know, in, in, uh, in Ezekiel, uh, the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says... Uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Right? So I grew up going to church. I went all the way through seminary. I really had no idea what hallowed meant. Like, go do that hallowed thing. You do. Whatever that is. You just go do that hallowed thing. The background to this is Ezekiel in the 30s. Because in Ezekiel, God is speaking to his people and he says, you know what? Um, I'm going to have to hallow my own name. Because the people around you have drawn the wrong conclusions about me. The way it works is, people look at you, my, is, my people, the Israelites, and they draw conclusions about me. And so people have been looking at you, and they've drawn wrong conclusions about me, because you haven't lived according to my, my principles. It's not their fault. So since you haven't hallowed my name, I've got to hallow my own name. And then he says, I'm going to fix this problem. There's going to come a day when I'm going to take that heart of stone that's in you and yank it out and give you a heart of flesh. And I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you. 
Now, Jesus references this in particularly John's Gospel, the 16th chapter, verses like 13 and following, 14 and following. He says, uh, I'm going to leave you now, but I'm going to send another helper, comforter, uh, even the spirit of truth. And then he writes, and this is, the, this is the key section, you will know him because he is with you, present tense. Right now he is with you. And when I'm crucified and resurrected, will be, future tense, will be in you. The life, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ makes it possible for that, that heart of stone to be taken out of you and a heart of flesh to be put in and the spirit of the living God to dwell in you. The only question is, how much space, how electrified is our relationship with that spirit? The Spirit is speaking all the time, but we are stunned by the noise of the world. And the chaos of our own inner life. Learn to listen. The great Augustine put it this way, marvelous, gorgeous language. In Latin, angustes domus anime mei, narrow Narrow is the dwelling place of my soul, God. I've got your spirit stuck in a 425-square-foot apartment. And then he writes, dilatator, like the English word dilatory. Crazy expansive. Expand it. Help me to broaden that space of my life where your spirit has access. Would you rather run your own? Or you want to live into the promise of the living God who loves you and gave himself up for you. Galatians is about learning to live into the expansive, wonderful reality. Life as God intended it. And yet we still hold on to the vestiges of life as we've screwed it up. Let us live free. I'm going to invite the members of the prayer team to come forward now. Um, let's say a prayer. Father God, when uh, we think about it, it's actually pretty amazing that you have patience with us. But thank you for that. Thank you for this patience. Thank you, Father God, that you uh, uh, never tire of extending to us your, your kindness and generosity. Give us a heart that wants to respond. Maybe live into the reality that you've created so that people experience the touch of our hands and the timbre and tone of our voices as the very presence of Jesus Christ. These things we pray. And all God's people said, Thank you very much. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much.